you know, I grew up listening to stories, being told a lot of stories. And I knew I wouldn't be able to recite stories the way I heard them in that lively, extroverted way. But when I got a book, my uncle gave me Madeline, like in a house of Paris that was covered with, with mine when I was four. And I remember when I got that book, I thought, oh, I want to do that, whatever that is. You just heard the voice of Haitian-American author Edwidge Dandika, who was my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. In this episode, she talks about mourning and death, birds and migration, literary ancestors, and Toni Morrison, loss and writing. And as you might notice, I am not Lynn Ullman, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is John Freeman. I'm one of the guest moderators this season, and I'm thrilled to be talking today to Edwidge about reading and writing and art and creativity and the world we live in right now. Edwidge Dandika is the author of numerous critically acclaimed works of fiction, nonfiction, and children's literature, YA books. Among them are the American Book Award winning The Farming of Bones, the National Book Critics Circle finalist The Art of Dying, the shimmering novel Claire of the Sea Light, sort of Dubliners for her birth country, Haiti, and most recently, the brilliant short story collection Everything Inside, winner of the Short Story Prize. In a humane, direct, and economic language, Edwidge writes about loss and exile, violence and grief, but also the beauty, resilience, and new beginnings of life as she's known it. She has perfected a form of linking stories together, weaving different perspectives, experiences, and moments into a larger, fragmented narrative. And almost always, Haiti is present in some ways. As the writer Robert Antoni has said, at we just doing for Haiti's history of violence and vengeance what Toni Morrison did for the U.S. in tackling the horrors of slavery in its aftermath. I've known Ed Weege and followed her writing for more years than I care to count, except that they provided enormous happiness. She's constantly engaging with our past as well as our present, so I can't wait to hear what she has to say of these unprecedented times which we find ourselves in. Welcome to How to Proceed. This is John Freeman joining you from New York. It's a great pleasure to be here with the writer and editor and uh, sometime actor, teacher, and all-around person of letters, Edwidge Dandika. Hi, John. So um, since everyone's going to be listening into this uh, on their headphones or driving somewhere in the car, maybe you could help set the scene for them. Uh, where are you right now and what's around you? What's out the window? Well, I am in um, Miami, Florida in Little Haiti. I It's just the street outside. It's a bright, sunny day, uh, a bit hotter than usual. Usually um, March announces itself, you know, as sort of the beginning of summer around here. Um, we're doing okay, uh, sort of starting year two of the pandemic now. Um, that's in the nice trees outside. Uh, the mangoes are flourishing. It's like a, a banner year for mango trees here. So there's a lot of like mini mangoes outside my window. <laughs> and you have an avocado tree too, yes? Yes. Um, yes. But not so lucky with the avocados. This year seems like the year of the mango. I was reading that piece again, which you wrote for the New York Review about mourning and about uh, trying to bring some mangoes to your neighbors in the middle of, of, 
of lockdown. And it, and it occurred to me that all the ways that you exist in a neighborhood are, are thwarted, especially if you ever move by a foot. Um, and I, I wonder if, um, if you've developed any new rituals about what to do at night or in the morning or with your kids or just ways to feel together when that's been a dangerous thing. For us, you know, the togetherness has been one of the silver linings of all of this and that, you know, we are together all the time. <laughs> but I hope, I truly, truly hope that my daughters will remember this as a really good time in their life. You know, one, one day we were out and social distancely, someone said to my, to my oldest, like, oh, joy, you get to spend your adolescence locked up in the house with your parents. And I was reading my daughter's face for a reaction. You know, my oldest for her, it's not so, you know, she, she's an introvert. She kind of likes being in, but our togetherness is all the time. And I think probably what will be interesting to see when we are back to, you know, when they're back in school full time, how that separation would look like with our neighbors, you know, and, and everybody who doesn't live in the house with us, I think the new ritual is the drive by, you know, you drive by to say happy birthday um, and for, you know, this weekend, you know, there's a couple who was very uh, close to my husband growing up, very good friends of his parents. Both of them passed away last week within an hour of one another. So their, their, their funeral is, is this weekend and how, you, you know, navigating that space has been really, really difficult in terms of having, being robbed of your, you know, like you don't have the rituals. That's been the hardest space to negotiate, whether you have sick people in the hospital who you're close to or whether attending funerals, these rituals of, of mourning that for us is very um, important as a community. You know, you, we haven't been able to do that to like comfort people in their, in their time of grief. Mourning's such a big part of your work um, from breath, eyes, memory, all the way up to your most recent book, the story prize winning everything inside. And it feels like because of the diaspora, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Haitian Americans have learned to mourn from a distance from the very beginning. And you describe and create dangerously going back home to see a beloved great, great aunt, I think, uh, and then leaving and, and, and how long it took the news of her death to reach uh, your father. I mean, it's almost a day and a half or two days. And I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the way that that kind of temporality of mourning has prepared the ground, if you will, for the kind of mourning that has to be done in Miami right now because of lockdown. Yeah, you know, I mean, until you said that, I hadn't made that connection really of how much training, you know, in a way migration had given us for this type of mourning. Because I remember, you know, when my parents um, first came to the U.S., they overstayed tourist visas and they were undocumented for a while. So when someone, you know, when many, a few of my parents' siblings died during that period, they couldn't come. So they had that, uh, you know, experience of, you know, without, you know, being able to see it, like of knowing someone was going to be buried on that day and then just going through that day, like having to still go to the factory, you know, when you knew your sister was going to be buried that day. And I had the experience of when people died when I was away, if I wasn't able to go to the funeral, it felt to me like the news hit the next time I visited when I went to their house and they weren't there, you know? So 
So with my aunt, it was my aunt Ileana who lived, she was the last person in our family who stayed in the ancestral village, you know, which was in the mountains. And there are no morgues really, which I thought was also a beautiful where, you know, you if the person passed away this morning, you know, they washed them, they laid them out, people visited throughout the night, they kept the body company, and then the next day they were buried. And that's how it was for her. So by the time my father learned, she had already been buried. So that um, there is that you have to then learn how to mourn from a distance too. And for, for me personally, often it was like I, I fully accepted the death when I on a visit, when I visited the grave. And, it, and that's actually when it felt real because the absence was always, you know, the person was flesh to you when you saw them on the visit anyway. The rest of the time they were a voice or you didn't hear. So that was an extension yeah, I mean, it's interesting too that this moment for many people is an extension of that. You know, at the same time, there are people who are in Haiti too who are learning of the death of their loved ones here from COVID because probably more people have died in New York who are Haitian or Haitian descent from COVID than, than is known to have died in, in Haiti. So there's been that reversal as, as well. There's a story in Everything Inside where a young woman learns that her father is dying and she's been raised by her mother in, in Brooklyn. And her mother has sort of kept some facts about her father from this, the, this woman. And she goes down to Miami to, to see her father. And it turns out, you know, um, he's, he's already died. Her father's wife, who's basically standing between her and her father, is trying to protect this young woman by saying, you know, in, until the um, morticians, until the EMTs come here, your father isn't dead. You know, and I, I, I wonder if you could, I guess, talk a little bit about the, the metaphysics of that, it, not just of, you know, the, the time gap, but what, what it means when you have to live in the in-between in spaces between the living and the dead. Um, it's something that seems to have preoccupied you throughout your life as a writer, is the mountains beyond, behind mountains, you know, and how close you can get to that and yet still be in this world. Um, yeah, I mean, it... it, it that in between spaces always fascinated me because, you know, because my uncle was a minister, I grew up um, in part with my uncle in Haiti and presided over so many funerals. And, and I saw him who was supposed to give comfort, right, to, to the uh, grieving, always give a sermon that, you know, that was similar in theme is that, you know, death is not the end. And then, you know, of course, in Haiti, there's the, the culture, cultural belief of religious, also combined with religious beliefs that comes to us all the way from Africa, you know, and through Vodou, and uh, that death is a, a part of a continuity. So for me, that that was always forefront and sort of my interpretation of death from the beginning. But there is a transitional time when you know you shed the body uh, and then become something else. I don't think that's unique to to our religious beliefs. Um, and so for me, that that element, that middle space, you know, where Catholics would say you're in or purgatory or so that middle space to me was very interesting. And and then C.S. Lewis, there's a moment where his wife, who's dying of cancer, promises him that she would pierce whatever veil, you know, to return to him if it's possible. Like she makes that promise to him. So uh, so that veil, you know, type of like what's behind that veil to me was always was always very interesting. And I think, you know, in terms of 
literary creation. It's like, for me, it always felt like a fertile space, like what you can do with it in terms of imagination, because I always um, thought that that transition would be different for, for different people based on the kind of life you've lived, the kind of culture you're in. So, so I, I see it as sort of a really fertile uh, space. And I, you know, in the order of death, I talk about, you know, you know Thais Selassie does this great thing with it where someone suffers a heart attack and it's just like, like half the book is, <laughs> is the heart attack, right? That, that middle space. And um, and Toni Morrison and Sula were were with the two friends, and so I just it it feels so it, it's a space that that has to for me so much um, possibility. You just mentioned your 2017 book, The Art of Death, uh, writing the final story, which is a, a memoir about your relationship with your mother and and her dying, but it's also a series of meditations on the way to write death, and not just what that says about death as a literary transition, but as what it means to us as, uh, as people. Um, and I, w- I wonder if you could read a tiny bit from the book, because I think it's, it's a powerful combination of, of uh, criticism and, I guess, philosophy as well. Well, um, thank you. So this chapter, Ars um, Moriendi, the Ars Moriendi was actually a ritual for early Christians, like where you're wrestling with death. And so, but this starts with my aunt Asia. When my father's younger sister, my aunt Asia, died in Haiti, she had outlived my father by seven years, something she marveled at each time I saw her after his death. I can't believe I'm still here and your father's not, she would say in the same pained voice in which she recounted burying her two oldest sons a few years back. The date on Isia had a massive stroke. She had just closed the stall in downtown Port-au-Prince where she'd been selling books and school supplies for over 30 years. She was on her way home when she stumbled and fell. The last two words she uttered were to a fellow vendor, tête-moi, my head. I heard about Isia's fall and eventual coma the following morning at 3 a.m. after she was hospitalized in a trauma facility near the Port-au-Prince airport. My cousin Agathe, who was one of many family members keeping vigil, called to ask if I would speak to the visiting American doctor on call. The doctor was a youthful-sounding woman from Philadelphia. Tante Gezia had been unconscious since her fall. She'd suffered a hemorrhagic stroke due to her high blood pressure. Tante Gezia's prognosis, the doctor said, was very poor. Agathe had been warned by another doctor that Tantrezia might not live through the night. The visiting doctor would neither confirm nor contradict this during our conversation. Sometimes the body takes its time, the doctor said. Tantrezia's body did take its time, though she never regained consciousness. She remained in the coma for another week before she died. If Tantrezia's death had been fictionalized, there probably would have been a death scene. Being in Miami, over 700 miles away, I tried to imagine one. Before my mother died, I had only witnessed deathbed scenes in literature and film. Other ideas about a person's final moments had come from stories I'd been told about death, including my father's. Were Teltgesia's final moments, like Sula's and Toni Morrison's eponymous 1973 novel of female friendship, 
What kind of pictures drifted to Tampiezia's mind before she took her final breath? Did she feel tired, an exhaustion so profound that it barely let her open her lips, let alone take a deep breath necessary to scream? Did she think that on the other side of her death would be an endless sleep, a much-needed rest? Was she amazed that dying didn't hurt as much as she thought it might? While in the state of wary anticipation, she, Toni Morrison, wrote in Sula, noticed that she was not breathing, that her heart had stopped completely. A crease of fear touched her breasts. For any second, there was sure to be a violent explosion in her brain, a gasping for breath. Then she realized, or rather she sensed, that there was not going to be any pain. She was not breathing because she didn't have to. Her body did not need oxygen. She was dead. Notice the precise use of the limited third-person point of view here in Morrison's writing. We are inside Sula's head. One might even say her heart. She stopped breathing, but the definitive moment, at least for me, is not the death itself, which is stated simply enough, she was dead, but the crease of fear that touches her breast then eventually goes away. The crease precedes the grand terror that Sula has been expecting, a violent explosion in her brain. Both the crease and the potential explosion capture the extremes of Sula's unpredictable personality which Morrison evokes one final time through Sula's forward thinking. Sula's realization that her body no longer needs oxygen is not sad but triumphant, as if needing oxygen were one more weakness she is shed by dying. We also get to experience a few moments past Sula's last breath to the threshold of whatever might come next. Thank you so much, Edwidge. I, I, I love that book. I, I taught it this year, and um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Morrison in the last two years, as I, I know you probably have done, because not only were you someone who read her very closely, but knew her as a person, as a professor, as a kind of mentor of sorts. She, you gave those lectures that became Create Dangerously at her behest. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Morrison means now in the context of a culture, ours in the United States, in which mass mourning needs to be done, uh, which is a form of collective historical remembrance, which she was so good at channeling. And, you know, you, you have in other aspects of your work, especially when talking about breath eyes memory, you've defended the right of certain books to only be about those characters, to not be representative, you know, and, and you've often said it, I, I'm not writing about 8 million people, I'm writing about three or four in, in that book. Um, mm -hmm. what, can, what can be done, do you think, um, on, on the individual level, writing about mourning and, and about transitions like the one that's in Sula, when we also need a collective mourning? Can one essentially lead to the other? Or is it really just simply an individualized process of, of experiencing that transition in a book and then gradually coming to grips with what has happened, say, in the last 18 months? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one of the, the gifts, you know, that the greatest among the great writers give us is a kind of blueprint, right, for our whole lives. And, and one of the things that I said in, in the eulogy that I was privileged to give at first service 
was that I feel like um, Toni Morrison gave me personally, and I know so many of us, a kind of, you can turn to at any moment in your life to one of the books for some, for some kind of guidance. You know, like when my children were born, um, I could go to the bluest eye and at least find out like what not to do. Um, and, and to, you know, when, when my parents were dying, you know, I remember that expression, she died, uh, baby Sugs dies soft as cream. And that's kind of what we owe for our loved ones, right? Um, on their final moments on, in, the, in their body. I just feel like she gave it all to us and she gave us, you know, during the moment of racial, uh, you know, the reckoning and the protest this past summer, you know, she gave us that in Song of Solomon, you know, um, those men could have been George Floyd. They were, you know, they could have been his ancestors. And, and, um, and so I imagine when I imagine what she would say about this time, I think of what, you know, they asked her at the, um, after 9-11 to write um, something about what had occurred. And, and I remember from it where she said, allow me to, some, I'm you know, paraphrasing, she said something like, allow me to speak to the dead with my mouth full of blood or something to that effect. And, um, and so I know she would have, have had something very eloquent to say, but she's already said it a lot in a lot of, in a lot of her work. I think you just have to go back to the work to find so much that she had in there for us. But it's, it's very, you know, the idea of experiencing something in this collective way, I think, you know, of course we yearn for her to be, <laughs> it'd be wonderful for her to be part of the collective voices trying to help us define this moment. But I think she left us a lot of things that, you know, in the same way that she said, you know, Tolstoy was writing for, for a little black girl in Lorain, Ohio. I, I think she was, also writing for so many people in so many moments to come. You know, we can find comfort in her work and especially company, you know, for the last 18 months. In The Art of Death, you give yourself quite a high bar in that you quote that um, indelible Annie Dillard line is to write as if these are your last words, and then to write as if these are the last words that would be read by the person reading them. And these, this seems doubly uh, potent for you. Uh, the aunt you just mentioned sold books in Stahl and Port-au-Prince, but you've mentioned in other places of your work that uh, your family were not all literate. Haiti has about a 59, 60% literacy rate, but it might be lower if it includes writing, you know, reading a whole book. So when it comes to imagining your reader, do you ever think about the fact that your reader may not be able to read? And what does that mean about what you write? Because you're also writing in your, in your second language, um, in a colonial mm-hmm. uh, language, if you will, too. Yeah, in an imperial language. <laughs> um, I'm writing actually in my third language. You know, the colonial language was the second, and then the imperial language is the third. Well, my aunt, you know, Isia, who she sold books in, in, in the way that a lot of uh, booksellers sold books in Haiti, that she sold school books. Um, and her busiest time was always like right before school started. You know, there also, there's a tradition of used booksellers in downtown Port-au-Prince um, where you can buy novels. And, but she was more like a school book and notebooks and 
and and every once in a while there was like a no, you know some novels that uh, were assigned in certain classes and uh, you know like like Candide or like really for older students and she would let me hold some books when I started reading and she would say don't crack the spine <laughs> so I literally had to read her books like without cracking the spine. And that, that's actually made me very rebellious against my books. Like I write all over my <laughs> books now. <laughs> but this idea, you know, of course, the, um, the, the, the readership notion, I think, is the, the idea that people who you're writing for wouldn't be able to read you. I think of um, one of our great novelists, Jacques Romain, who wrote a book called um, Gouverneur de la Ouse, Masters of the Dew, which was translated by Langston News uh, and Mercer Cook. Uh, later on, and his novel, you know, was about what they refer to as like the peasantry, like the rural area, like the people my family comes from. And and he knew, you know, knowing that the, the people he was writing about would possibly not be able to read this, read his his work, but he still felt like, you know, those stories need to be told. And I think, you know, I have the the double distance of languages and so what we've done, like when the books are translated, we, um, we've done a very sort of cheap paperback editions of them so that they could be circulated in Haiti. But there is, you know, I think just as I come from people who told me stories orally that I then write that, that they may not be, you know, then able to read. I, I you know, there, of course there's a tension in that, but I try to bring the stories back to Haiti and the in my person and being there when I can and talking to readers and talking to especially young people. But that is that's the dilemma of I think it's also, you know, the dilemma of writers who are writing in English, who grew up whose whose parents say, you know, grew up only speaking Spanish. So I, I think it's 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 part of the immigrant dilemma for sure of being of being a, a writer away from the country where you were born or your parents were born. And Create Dangerously, which is a book about being an immigrant writer sometime in a kind of exile. You, you mentioned the, the Haitian writer, Danny Lafierre, who wrote a book called Je suis un écrivain japonais, mm-hmm. which is, I'm a Japanese writer. And you have this marvelous quote, you know, in which the author stand-in says in the book, I'm surprised to see how much attention is paid to a writer's origin. I repatriated without giving it a second thought. All the writers I read as a young man, Flaubert, Goethe, Whitman, Shakespeare, Lope de Vega, Cervantes, Kipling, Senghor, Cesare, Uman, Mato, Diderot, they all live in the same village that I did. Otherwise, what were they doing in my room? I, I I love that so much, and I it, maybe uh, you know you mentioned that your your aunts who sold um, the textbooks occasionally sold French novels or novels written in French, um, and I wonder who were the names in your in your room growing up if they were from all over the world, or if they were primary French and Haitian, or if it was a mixture of everything. Oh, they were primary French because they were for classes. So I remember reading, you know, without cracking the spine, is fully reading. I remember reading. Candide like that, yeah. the the Voltaire, and not fully grasping, but my favorite of all the novels, I think there was someone who might have been teaching a class on Zola, you know, I think I felt like for me the most, I guess, of the French that that I of what I read that I identified with was the Zola. Like 
l'assommoir and those those novels which were so you know greedy in a way that sort of you know there were parts of Zola's writing that reminded me of how one might have written about Port-au-Prince you know in some ways um, again I didn't fully grasp it and then I later on when I reread I thought oh that's what I kind of that's why that stayed with me and then um, so they were mostly what she was selling and and my family didn't really you know there was enough you were doing so much in school in school we read excerpts from those books like we read excerpts from like Les Miserables or we read Dumas because he had you know excerpts because he was believed to have been of you know he's of Haitian parentage um and so but I didn't read oh I wasn't taught Haitian writers really until I uh I didn't read Haitian writers until I came to the U.S. and because I couldn't read English. Then my dad took me to the New York Public Library, the Brooklyn Public Library branch, um, which still has such a very special place in my heart. And so my dad, I remember, brought me there, and so I can get some books. And we went to a corner of the library where they had a bookshelf of of Haitian novels, and said literally had a thing, Levaisien. And so I got like ten of them. <laughs> And I started reading, um, and it was really, so I, then I started reading Haitian writers like Jacques Romain, Jacques Stéphane Alexis, Marie-Dieu Chauvet, Gigi Dominique, and it was really interesting. It was a way for me of going back. Uh, so when I was reading, it felt great to like, oh, I know this street. I know this place that they're talking about. I, so it, it was a kind of revisiting through literature. And, and I think that was the first time I realized that literature had that power as well you know, to take you back to a place that you had left. I've often wondered if, if um, of, all, of all your novels, uh, books, um, because you, you write this kind of interesting, interstitial type of novel, um, a novel and story cycles, which I'll, I want to ask you about in a little bit, but I, I've often wondered if The Farming of Bones is, is sort of the most honorific of novels written in that style back towards the Haitian, some of the Haitian writers you just described. Uh, so the farming of bones is about a massacre of Haitian cane workers uh, in the Dominican Republic in 1937, which was ordered by Rafael Trujillo. So it's um, it's a story that was already you know that was written about by other Haitian novelists, uh, uh, Jacques Stephen Alexis, who I mentioned, uh, General Sun, my brother, Copé Général Soleil um, touches on it. There's a, another novelist, René Philopect, who that novel was translated as Massacre River and others have certainly, you know, treated it. But I, I guess for me, when I, I, I do think of my, of my books as being in conversation with um, other Haitian novels. So you, the, the novel and stories you mentioned that there's the Do Breaker. So Do, La Rose, and Jacques Gomez, Gouverneur de La Rose. Masters of the Do, which is a novel really, Jacques Romain was openly Marxist and believed in sort of collectivity as a way to get out of dire situations. So he, the novel, the young man, Manuel, returns from Cuba to his village where there's a drought and he's trying to get these two family, warring families to come together to, to let a, a irrigation go through there. It's, it's a very beautiful and wonderful novel. It's very short. I highly recommend. So when I was writing The Dewbreaker, which was about, you know, set during the dictatorship, which is, and, and was about so much 
you know, destruction, I thought he was aiming at something different there, you know, so he was writing about do makers and I'm writing about do breakers. And so I felt like that novel was also, because also it's a novel that I love very much in conversation with that. And, and so there is always that, if you will, intertextuality <laughs> being sought, but it's, but in a way it's kind of um, respect, you know, there it's, it's funny you said honorific because in Haitian culture, there's especially in the the countryside, there's a greeting where you say to someone "one," you know, and they say "respect," and so the the "one" is honor. You say to the person "honor," which is like I honor you, and then then they say "respect," and I say I respect you. So it's a kind of "one respect" to the to my literary ancestors, if you will. You you um edited an anthology of, of Haitian writing called um, The Butterfly's Way. And, you know, when reading your work, I, uh, butterflies appear, um, as you note, in The Art of Death, you also follow butterfly through Thais Selassie's beautiful novel, Ghana Must Go. But the other thing that is throughout your work are birds. You know, you, you have the amazing fact and in everything inside about a bird who flies backwards. Mm-hmm. And birds appear in the art of death. You, your mother refers to her spirit flies away like a bird. You describe in one case death entering a room, passing you by, almost brushing against you like with its feathers. I want to ask you how conscious some of this braiding of symbolism is in your work, and also just in a really nerdy, not ornithologist, but bird swatty <laughs> way. Are you one of those people who watches for birds where you are, or do they just come? through the unconscious of your work? I, I think they might just come through the unconscious. I'm not a bird watcher by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt like at very different times in my life where they're, they sort of find me, you know. If you, you know, here where we live, you get to the migration, right? And it's this awesome, sometimes, you know, sometimes I think I'm in the movie, The Birds. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I also have that person. I do not idealize the birds. I have to tell you from watching that movie when I was 13, it's made me a bit weary of birds. But um, but there is something very intriguing to me about flight. And and I think that might in part be to ancestral memory, this idea of that is part of, you know, from Ibo landing, landing, you know, in the Carolinas here in the United States. You know, to just this idea that, and it's in Morrison as well, you know, so strongly in Song of Solomon, this idea that we can return, you know, and I just watched the Henry Louis Gates series on the Black church and the way that these beliefs are so merged in spirituals, like I'll, like people like, I'll fly away, oh glory, you know, um, so you're, you can, the idea that you can fly, be flying away thinking you're flying away to heaven, or you could be flying away back to Africa, you know. And I, you know, when my parents, when were, they were very religious throughout their whole life, but when they were both dying, they, they had this idea, like they would say to the younger, you know, I'm going to heaven. My mother would say to my daughters, you know, so at the funeral, my youngest was like, well, you know, if she's going to heaven, why bother put her in this box? And, and keep her under the ground because that would that be too hard to like get out of the box? Like, why not just let her fly? When she said that, it, it just felt to me like I realized how long this idea of flight has been with me. 
my whole life. And I think part of the thing with the butterfly that has always fascinated me is this idea of transformation, right? And that just like this idea that that I had very young, that a butterfly is something that was crawling on the ground and it suddenly has wings. And I feel like, you know, God helped me when I learned about monarch butterflies, which is even more fascinating that they travel these thousands and hundreds and thousands of miles and still remember where to go back to. I mean, for me, that was also very strongly linked with the idea that this ancestral memory that that young man and son of Solomon can still think that he can fly back to Africa after all these generations of being on this side of the world, you know? So um, it's, a, it's an endless fascination that perhaps was just born out of very early in my life when my grandmother, when a butterfly would land near her, she would say something like, Oh, I wonder who this is. Like, I wonder who's visiting us. And so I still wonder that when, when I see a butterfly, I, like, I wonder who's, who's stopped by. Do you think it's, it's also connected to some degree to the ideas of work and, and labor? At your mother's memorial, there was a verse from Timothy 4, 7-8 about, uh, you know, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've, I've kept the faith, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. And then it goes on, and it's, it's kind of what someone says, you know, I've, I've worked hard, I've kept the faith, you know. And I, I've often seen birds when they land uh, after a long migration. I think that is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I think it's yeah. a particular conception of, of heaven and the afterlife, which is like you can rest now. Yeah. To yeah. some degree. And I, you know, I, I wonder how you feel about that conception of the afterlife now that it's been some years since both your parents have died. My mother died in the middle of a life of long labor herself. And I always look back and I think, but you never stop working, you know, up until, you know, even your death was hard work. And, and so I, I wonder how you feel in, in this time about that idea of the afterlife, if it cold comfort or if you if you've had to kind of reconceive what you think of uh, what awaits. Mm. I mean, I, it's that's so powerful what you what you just said about labor. Right. Because that verse, in a way, it seems like. It's meant, you know, it's meant, I guess, in a philosophical or spiritual way. But yeah, for people like our parents, it was actual labor. You know, my mom never did stop working, really. Even when she wasn't working, she was working. And not working was felt unnatural to her. And, and sadly, it's something that I feel like I have inherited. Like, I feel like I'm not being productive unless I'm like really, really working hard. And, and so... Like in that verse, which is in a lot of the funeral cards of like, it was on my father's, it was on my uncle's, it was on my mother's. And, and it says you can like death as a kind of rest, but it's, it's so true in the sense of people who are, who've had to work really hard. And as you said, you know, when the death itself was hard, like my father spent a really painful year dying. He had a lung disease and, and I know a lot of people can identify now at the moment, watching someone die of a lung disease, it's one of the most painful deaths because you're really, I mean, it's so prevalent now in, in many places, but to watch someone gasp for breath every single day, you know, it, it, will, it makes you stop taking breathing for granted, as I'm sure, you know, a lot of family members now have had that horrible experience. 
when someone's having this long, a year long of having trouble breathing, when and you know they're going to die, so you've had all that time to grieve. So when they die, you're just there's a relief there that their suffering has ended because it was it's horrible suffering. And so my, my father's funeral, my mother who didn't cry because she'd been crying for a year. She was exhausted and she was relieved and she knew she had, they had that common belief that he was off somewhere better. So I remember, um, so she called me one day and she said, I, the church people are criticizing me because I didn't show enough grief. So I was like, well, that's ridiculous. But then my uncle, Justin, who's her oldest brother died like maybe a few months later. So at his funeral, she was like, like besides herself, it was like she was screaming. She was like, and she said, that's so they won't criticize me. <laughs> so she she then did kind of her, you know, like kind of like in the culture too, they have the whalers, the, you know, and, and I know in some cultures you hire professional weepers. And, and so, so there was also that element of what's expected, how you expected to grieve. Um, that I think is also, you know, it's also part of this moment because you, you don't even have that opportunity to be around people. And, and then that's tied in with this element of labor too, because people who are undervalued already in the society that they live in, a big funeral, devastated family members, is what now, dis- it's how you display their value, right? It's your final opportunity to display their value. I mean, I, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still sort of processing what you said about work, but it is, all of it was so much work that there's this element of it that you feel like, okay, be at rest now, like sleep now, right? And I think that's, that's the other part of death that people are like, okay, you are, you can finally rest, you know, rest in peace. One of the writers who has previously been on this podcast, uh, Deborah Levy, had a question that's, that's slightly related to what we've just been talking about. And we will now hear the question from Deborah herself. How have you been sleeping during the pandemic? And do you regard this as a literary question? I can fully disclose that I regard it as a useful question for a writer to consider, but perhaps you disagree. I know, you know, Ed Reed, you've written and edited over 20 books. So I, I know that you, you, you are an occasional sender of a 1.45 a.m. email. <laughs> but I wonder if, if that has changed during the pandemic, if, if something about the interregnum of this time period has allowed you to slow down or pause and, and rest a little bit, or if, if the same thoughts about work and labor that you just talked about have, have kept you up. Um. Well, I, I will consider it a literary question only because the night is really my most productive time. And um, before I had to like get up at 6 a.m. With, with babies, I worked through the night and basically slept like until noon. And then, you know, it's just kind of like writing on this, like especially if I was working on something with this binge writing. But I've not slept very well at all during the pandemic. And, um, and part of it is some worry and, um, and right, actually, maybe this is like overly personal, but right at, at before this, the pandemic, I was diagnosed with like this arthritis in my spine. 
So that makes it hard to sleep at night. Like, you know, like I'm in pain a lot. And, and part of it, you know, when they say you have stress, it expresses in your back. So, um, so I, you know, I worry about my loved ones, especially in the beginning. I was very worried. Um, there's a lot happening in Haiti, too, at the moment, politically, that I worry about, that I worry about loved ones. So it's, you know, I haven't slept very much, but I also have found it, like, usually I process my everything through, through my writing. So I, I try to sleep because I find that at this, you know, at this age, you know, I've been reading all these things on sleep <laughs> and, and how it's related to your health. <laughs> so I know I must sleep to live longer. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do more of that. And, in, and I'm trying to sort of wrap my writing around the different breaks that I have in the day. I'm used to separating my writing times to like my other things that I do in life, like parenting and other things. So I, in the middle of the night, you're just like, there's nothing else you could be doing except maybe surf the internet or something. But now it's all weaved together. But um, I don't, I don't begrudge it. I feel like you have to, I know that if suddenly I had an urgent idea, like I would, I would find some way to put it around. Like the work urges you to just like find the spot wherever it is when it's, when it's that urgent. So living has felt more urgent than, than writing, right? Like, but sleeping is important writers. It is very important. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning. It's when you sort of defrag the, the machine. <laughs> yeah. And are you sleeping? Or are you, I'm curious the, your answer to that question because uh, you are also constantly working. Yeah. I, I guess I, I, I relate to the ideas of work and, and labor for all sorts of reasons. My mother was a hospice social worker, and so she spent oh, wow. a lot of her life helping people die, but through the conversations about it. In the context of that kind of work and the work my father did, I, I always felt like work, like writing work, as you write and everything inside, always made me feel a tiny bit guilty, like it wasn't proper work. It wasn't a form of labor, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I've, I've really enjoyed your work lately is just how much you've, you've expanded the notion of what uh writerly presence can be in, in these children's books like my mommy medicine which is such a beautiful book which a book probably for five to eight year olds a picture book told from the perspective of a girl uh who who says when I'm, whenever i'm sick or just feel kind of gloomy or sad i can always count on my mommy medicine and then it proceeds to enumerate the ways that her, her mother provides a kind of imagine a figurative imaginative but also quite effective form of love medicine if you will it made me wonder, you know, if it's not too personal to ask you, you know, what ways as a as a as a creative mother, because you probably had to do some homeschooling, your own kind of um, literary medicine had to adapt for your for your your kids at home, you know, because in addition to being around and being present and probably being needed as a physical presence, you were probably suddenly roped into the the role of being a teacher in ways that you probably had never been before. And I wonder what that was like if, if indeed you did do it, how that's different from say um, the forms of comfort and care that my mommy medicine is about. I apologize. Like someone decided to mow their lawn right <laughs> this second. Um, so my mommy medicine actually grew out of a project that my daughters and I, you know, we started like when I had to travel and if they were sick when I was away, it was actually a way for me to feel less guilty. I, I would say, you know, grandma, 
or Papa will give you some mommy medicine. And, and so, and we would think about all the ways that we passed the time when they were sick at school, you know, the baths, the, the medicine and stories we, you know, we told each other. And, and so now, I mean, it's full on mommy medicine. And also, you know, I think what's been interesting as, as being a parent doing this moment at home with your kids, certainly for me, like the physical presence is in it. Like initially you, you realized yet sometimes the, the email was down and then you had to give your phone that you were then using for work to things like, you know, in, in the beginning I was thinking, there's no way you can be late to home, you know, internet school. That's not possible. <laughs> You cannot, you will not be tardy to internet class and you kind of have to like keep, you know, keep the flow going. And, but there's also this element of it, like as an adult person, you realize you're like, okay, there's a part of you that wants to say, does this even matter when like thousands and thousands of people are, are, are dying? Like, you know, and then you, and also to not, you know, trying not to stress your kid in a very stressful time when they have fears of their own. And so I think that's, that's also an emotional balance that you're always trying to balance. I mean, you, you have to find creative ways to keep them engaged and also the emotional. I think that the book was about kind of like emotional support for young people when they're not feeling well, which is, this doesn't, it's not just sick days, you know, like it's ongoing. And, and trying to figure out how to manage your own stresses and your own stressors, you know, and while, while trying to be honest and be open with young people. I mean, I'm very curious to see how, you know, there, there was a, a, a series in the Times recently of images and writings by young people and how they've lived through the pandemic. So it was really interesting to see how some of them had, were visualizing it, and they're not always verbalizing it. So. So there's a lot of need for, you know, I didn't know young, you know, because young people always on their devices often, like I, it, it, it sounds silly, but it surprised me how much they craved like physical company of other young people, like as the thing, dra- you know, as it all dragged on and we're poor substitutes as adults, right. <laughs> for, for that kind of comfort. So it's still, it's still ongoing. I'm, I'm certainly still, still learning. Is it remarkable to you to think that, you know, you began writing, uh, I, I know the stories from Crick Crack uh, date to not very long after your arrival in the U.S. when you were 12. I mean, I know that, that I'm slightly exaggerating. They were published in your late, one of them was published, I think, in your late teens. Yeah, when I was about yeah, 14, 15. Yeah. I mean, which is remarkable. And I wonder if, if now that your old, oldest daughter is approaching that age, if you look back to Crick Crack and, and have any thoughts that are different about what you think you were doing there, what you were, what was compelling you to, to write those stories? Mm. Um, yeah, I think, you know, when I was, when she was 12 and I, I thought of me when I was 12 and it's inevitable, you know, not to look for these, these markers. Um, I saw, I was watching this something the other day where, um, a man said, you know, in publicly commenting on a sort of a public conflict between a, an adult child and, and a parent where this, this person said, you know, we who are immigrants who grew up a certain way, like who grew up 
struggling. He said, we try to give our kids what we, what we didn't have, or perhaps we should give them what we had, <laughs> you know, a bit of that. I mean, I, there's no way to recreate it. But I mean, my kids, were, they would have had very different lives than, than I had at, at that age. But it's something that, you know, retracing back to see, you know, I was thinking, I think because of all that I had seen, all that I had lived through, I, I was really already thinking that I want some things put down. Like I, there are so many things I don't want to forget. And so writing those stories also came out of that. And, and it's strange, like this year, this past year, that, you know, feeling has returned for me because of, you know, the sort of unpredictability of this moment of, especially at the beginning when it wasn't, you know, it was, we didn't, there's no, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know, you hear about people getting sick and some of them having no symptoms or feeling nothing and then others dying. And, and so you're thinking to yourself, well, where would I fall in that spectrum? And, and this notion of like, for me, putting my affairs in order has always meant, of course, like, when you have children that, you know, those legalities, but also for me, it's always part of that has always been around writing, right? Like what, what kind of things do I want to leave behind? And, and so, um, so that this year has also been part of that, of, of seeing, okay, what have I done? And what will I, what would I do next if I, if I were spared? And the idea of like feeling like you might or might not be spared was really going back to what you said about, you know, renew this idea of mortality, right? As though it were a last thing, you know, this is a, a notion also from Annie Dillard's The Writing Life and also right as though someone were reading it as though it were the last thing they were reading, like that urgency of writing things that matter to you, I feel like has returned for me. Such a precocious sense of memory, uh, of the importance of memory you're describing uh, as of being a a young writer. Um, and one of the questions that another previous guest left behind, uh, George Saunders. Um, hey, George. <laughs> who, um, who, who I feel like, given the bardo that he wrote about, could, could very well partake in this conversation from all kinds of angles. But here is George Saunders asking the question himself. When was the very first moment that you, in retrospect, knew you were a writer? Or what was the first moment, looking back at it, where you can see, oh, that's a writerly person right there? So the earliest thing she can remember that would make us think, oh, that kid's going to be a writer. Because she's kind of a prodigy. I, I love her as well. And, tell, and please give her my greetings. Uh, you know, I grew up listening to stories, being told a lot of stories. And I knew I wouldn't be able to recite stories the way I heard them in that lively, extroverted way. But when I got a book, my uncle gave me Madeline, like in a house of Paris that was covered with, with mine when I was four. And I remember when I got that book, I thought, oh, I want to do that, whatever that is, um, because you don't have to do it in front of people. Like you can take the book, like I, you can take the storyteller into an intimate space with you, like in your bed, in your, in a corner and read that. I said, I want to be that kind of storyteller. I didn't know how that was happening. And especially when I was reading these French guys who were dead, I was like, well, do I have to be French and dead for it to, <laughs> to happen? Or, but eventually when I, you know, came across living writers, um, I thought, oh, I want to do that. But that might've been, you know, about when I was nine, I remember doing with my brothers, we 
made some books that we stapled together. Um, I knew I wanted to tell stories, let's see. I didn't know exactly, but I knew, and I wanted to tell them in a way that was on paper. I didn't know how that happened. But when I started writing in my teens for this newspaper in New York called New Youth Connections, I thought, oh, this is how it, you do it. You think of something and then you try to you know, make it as clear as possible and, and people read it. And so that, that's when I knew, okay, I want to write books. And uh, so I, I would say between 9 and 14, I, I was very clear that that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that I would do it no matter what else I was doing. My parents wanted me to be a doctor and I kind of tried to go down that path, but I knew as my father said that I would um, write, even if I became a doctor, I would write on the weekends after brain surgery is, is, what, is how my dad put it. Like you can, you can write on the weekends after brain surgery. And I was like, okay, I could, <laughs> I could manage that. Talk about work, my gosh. <laughs> Did, did you know from, from very early on, um, too, that the short story would be one of the enduring forms you'd stay with? I mean, your commitment to it has been marvelous, and it's, it's changed over time. You've written very different types of stories. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. And I still, I mean, there are moments where I feel like it, it might be, it has to do with my attention span and not being able to, like, spend years doing something um, longer. But it's, there's something I love about its economy, like the, the economy of the short story, like, and, and it might go back to just the way I was told stories, right? The, um, you know, that it has a kind of arc that you can hold, like the whole thing in your head. Um, but I, you know, I'm trying not, like right now, I'm, I, I'm trying to work on, on a novel and I, but often my not, things that I think are novels end up being my, being the short stories. But it's a wonderful form. I love to read it. I, and it's been wonderful to, to write so many. But no, I didn't really come start with that at fully in mind. Um, you've anthologized uh, quite a lot of stories in Haiti Noir 1 and 2. Uh, and the book I mentioned before, you've been an editor for Beacon Best Young Stories. Are, are there short story writers now that you are excited about that where you think um, when you you see their name in a in a magazine or a literary journal you think I have to read that and see what they're up to oh there's so so many you know there's Daniel Evans you know always Zizi Packer who writes amazing amazing short stories and um, Daniel Alacorn there's some things like extremely that feels so familiar to me and 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 his short stories. You know, you always like blank out when you get like when gets fully that question, Brian Washington. Yeah, they're quite I mean, I think I mean one of the things that's great now about the, the short story, it, it feels to me more recently that there's been like when a short story book is published, now it's not just, oh, the writer is taking a pause to, you know, to do short stories, but it's it's really like, like a fully appreciated form. And of course, I think, you know, um, people like George, uh, you know, Saunders has, you know, have paved the way for that. Like he's made a career too out of mostly writing short stories. Um, I think of, um, of the writers you just mentioned, uh, Brian Washington in his book, Lot, um, does something 
that, that you do, and, and also, and I, I would say all of your collections, you might disagree, but it feels like um, from Crick Crack to um, The Dewbreaker, which is a kind of novel in stories, to Claire of the Sea Light, which is like a kind of cycle of stories, to uh, this most recent book, uh, Everything Inside, um, which is a, which is stories linked by, among other things, the idea of love and care. You're writing a, a kind of collection which is knitted. Um, I wonder if you can talk about that, uh, not just as a as a way around short attention span, which I don't believe, <laughs> but as a as a way that might reflect something about the the spaces that you situate stories in that the ellipticalness and knittedness of a, a st story cycle somehow captures that. And I wonder if you agree with that or if you, if you have another reason why this linked form is something that you, you come to. For me, I find extremely fascinating, like we were talking about the idea of the in-between, of sort of what lies like the unspoken between the stories, like that space where we as readers go about living our lives too between the stories. So I, 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 I like that, that idea of jumping from one thing to another. Um, but I, I think you've put it very well, like with the knitting, like the needed, it's, it's kind of, I see, I see those, the kind of stories and when they're put together as a kind of quilt. And Gene Toomer's Cane for me uh, was a very early model in that you know, just weaving in and out of these different experiences. And they're not all the same, but they but you travel through them and and they're held together like a quilt. And so if you keep that metaphor of the quilt as sort of like the, the knitting in between or these spaces that, you know, that that's sort of like slightly unknown to you in between stories, I, I've always found that really, really powerful. Mm. And quilts too were forms of remembrance and, and recording. There's a way to record time and, and happenings. And we were talking earlier quite a bit about mortality and, and death scenes, as, you know, as a result of you writing the art of death and just the, the time that we live in. And it seems like many of the death scenes in, in your books are the are, are death scenes, which sometimes happen inopportune moments that are the unresolved death, if you will, like Claire and the and Claire of the Sea Light you know, the disappearance of a, of a girl in a seaside town and, and how it ripples throughout the people in that town. And I, I guess I wonder if there's anything happening within you now, as in ways that you think this might be remembered collectively. I mean, the reason I ask is you participated in the, in the Cameron Project, in which a series of writers wrote stories for the New York Times Magazine. And I, I wonder what it was like for you to rather than knit your own quilt to become part of a, a quilt being knitted sort of in real time? Yeah, I mean, I think as a reader, first of all, it's going to be so extraordinarily fascinating to see what emerges out of this period, right? Because they're, one of the things I've read throughout this period, one of the things I've, I've been reading is uh, Zadie Smith's Intimations, right? in which she kind of gives us an immediate dispatch from early on. For me, I was really haunted early on by this notion of, of people being completely separated from their loved ones and having to communicate through a device, um, right, through the phone. And so that's what my story in the Decameron Project was about, this couple 
who has to, they have to find ways to connect while the husband is in the hospital on a ventilator and the wife is at home. So that was a thread of that experience that haunted and stayed with me. So that's what I wanted to um, memorialize, if you will, in, in a story. So, and then reading through that, you know, the Decameron Project and reading um, through other essays, you know, and things people have written about this period, it gives you a feeling that like, I'm, it's like, it's like living through um, 9-11, for example, right? When you were in New York and then people for so long debated, you know, will there be a good novel about this period? And what I, and you, what I, you saw and what you're seeing, of course, the journalism and then there's poetry and then fiction takes a little bit longer. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to, to see how we emerge collectively, of course, spiritually, philosophically, all the other ways, but also to see what kind of literature is produced about that moment. Will it be like the Decameron? Will it be a completely rebellion against that period? It's good to see things that document the, the moment, like I'm thinking we'll see that, but also it's good to see those things that completely rebel, right? That goes completely the other way. So I think it'll be a, it'll be a mixture of that. But for me personally, I really wanted to have some markers for myself some things where I, where I look back five, 10 years from now and say, oh, this is what I was thinking, because there's a way that life moves so quickly in the time that we live in, and then we move on to other concerns. But I really wanted to have these kind of things where I read and I go, oh, this is what I was feeling. And I never really, I'm among those people that never really want to forget. Um, ask you to, to have one final reading here, because it's, it relates to the idea of how long a time gap needs to occur or can occur between something and, you know, fiction, which is grows out of or at least addresses a rupture. And, and this would be the earthquake in, in Haiti in 2010, which you have written about in many forms, but it, it appears in your, your latest book, Everything Inside, which was published in 2019 in a story called The, the Gift about an affair that has ended and the couple get together at a beach resort, uh, not a beach resort, <laughs> sorry, at a bar on July 4th. Um, Mm-hmm. It's the first time they've seen each other since since the earthquake, since they split up, and there's some big changes. She learned a few weeks after they met that he had a wife and a baby. After he sold a multi-million dollar mansion to a new star player for the Miami Heat, he was profiled in the business section of the Miami Times. He had moved to New York with his family at age nine. His wife was born into a well-to-do Haitian clan and had relocated to Miami as an adult. Her family was in the construction trade in Haiti, and he wanted to enter the market there. It was a perfect fit. The picture of the three of them on the newspaper's website, him, his wife, his infant daughter, sitting in their luxurious Miami penthouse living room, hit her like an assault. There they were, holy trinity, perfect family. The wife's mists of Lebanese and Haitian ancestry showed in her russet-colored skin and the cascade of thick Cleopatra-style hair. Their daughter, nearly a year old, was doughy, edible-looking, her pudgy arms wrapped around his wife's jeweled neck. Thomas now slid his body close to hers until there was nowhere else for him to go. When he rested his head on her shoulder, she reached into her bag for her cell phone. She was going to call a girlfriend to come rescue her so she wouldn't be tempted to backtrack or change her mind or slip into old ways after dinner. Watching her drop her cell phone back in her purse, he said, I was at the Caribbean market in Port-au-Prince once, and all of the maids were on their cell phones with their mistresses. 
I should put that differently with their bosses. And then the maids got on the phone with their maids to tell them what to cook for their kids for lunch. When she narrowed her eyes and looked perplexed, he added, after the earthquake, didn't you hear about all those people who were stuck under houses and schools and the Caribbean market texting for help on their cell phones for hours? Did you have your phone with you when the house fell? She asked. He raised his head from her shoulders and Anika felt the much lighter weight of him slip away. For once, no, he said. I was trying to focus on family, but I wish I did have my phone with me down there. I love that section because it's it's a very potent reminder that um, no matter what happens, uh, <laughs> life goes on. Yeah. Breakups still happen and all that. And, and we've just been really lovely talking to you. And it's such a pleasure to get a, an excuse to go back over some of your work, which is it really shimmers in the mind brilliantly. And um, since this is a, a kind of Decameron project of interviews, I, I guess the last thing we should we should end with here is a question that you might have of a future guest. This is something you're asking of um, Rachel Cusk, yes. yet another industrious and prolific uh, writer. Yeah. You've said that discipline is a big part of creating a body of work. This is not something that's discussed enough. People expect writers to simply be inspired. What does discipline look like to you in the day-to-day -day of your writing? Which is wonderful, by the way. <laughs> Edwidge, it's been lovely spending time with you remotely. It's been too long that I've seen your face. Um, I hope to see it in the real very soon. It's been really great to have a chance to talk about work and, and rest too. Yes. It's, it's, it's always great chatting with you. So thank you for, for doing this. It's a, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in. It's been a pleasure being your guest host, um, being your Lynn for the week. Um, tune in again to this wonderful podcast from House of Literature. And uh, hopefully soon House of Literature will be open again and we can all go back, enjoy a coffee and pick up a book. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Edwidge and John talked about.